Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be talking about two different biotech companies that recently shared some updates that led to some pretty big declines in their stock price. So we're going to first talk about Carrier Farm, which shared a regulatory update about the path forward for endometrial cancer with Selenexor treatment. And it was an unfortunate update that we got back. So I'll touch more on that and sort of the implications moving forward. And then the other company I want to talk about is Kodiak Sciences, which has a product for wet AMD as well as a number of different retinal disorders. And their update also led to a big decline in their stock price. But I think there is a potential trade here that I'm going to share more with you uh, in a bit. So those are the two stories we're going to talk about. Thank you so much for all of the support. Please hit that like or subscribe button so that it does continue to help push the numbers up so that I can continue to keep this train going and potentially get some nice guests on the show. So with that, we're gonna get right into it. So the first story I wanna talk about is that from Carry Farm. And the press release reads that Carry Farm provides a US regulatory update on Selenexor in advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer. And so in my last video, Carry Farm was trading around $14 per share. And I think on the Monday when the stock opened, it was down to around 10 or $11 not really based on any news. And then once this regulatory update came out, the stock got hammered down to around $6 per share. So the enterprise value went from around a billion dollars down to less than $400 million, which is very unfortunate. And for those who don't know, the Siendo trial was an evaluation of patients that had endometrial cancer. And the goal was to treat them with Selenexor or placebo in the maintenance setting. And the goal was to see whether or not there can be an improvement in progression-free survival. So the news that I shared in the last video was that there was a, according to Carrier Farm, a statistically significant improvement in PFS compared to placebo. The hazard ratio was 0.7 and the progression-free survival was 5.7 months compared to 3.8 months on placebo in these patients. And so the company had set out a goal of hitting a hazard ratio of 0.6, so they were unable to hit that in their total population. But when they did a subgroup analysis of wild type P53 patients, the hazard ratio went down to 0.38, so a much greater effect in this subset of patients. So I posited that Carrier Farm might be able to seek approval with this data set in the entire patient population, but that it would be risky because the hazard ratio of 0.7 might not be enough for the FDA to see a benefit here given the risk profile of the drug. Now I thought that if they were going to consult with the FDA, they could also present this wild type P53 data and this would be much more compelling and it would be much more likely for the FDA to say that they could move forward with a supplemental NDA for the wild type P53 mutation patient population only. Now we got the worst possible news, which is that the FDA said that there could be no path forward with the data set that would support a approval of a supplemental NDA. So the press release here reads that the company received feedback that the current Ciendo study top line results are unlikely to support an SNDA approval. 
They say the Carrier Farm and the FDA participants had differing views on the study's significance and overall clinical benefit for the whole population and discussed that further exploration of patients with advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer with P53 wild type is warranted. So unfortunately, the company got the worst feedback from the FDA and they are going to need to do another trial. So the company says that they intend to initiate a new placebo-controlled randomized clinical study of Selenexor in patients with P53 wild type endometrial cancer and believes that top-line data will be available in the first half of 2024. So they're planning to initiate this study as soon as possible while working with the FDA as well as established networks and partners. So in my previous video, I mentioned that the management dysfunction bear narrative was a waning feature of the company. And the reason for this is that there was a new guard of leadership that had come into the company and given their experience with multiple myeloma, they had the real experience to take Selenexor through the pipeline of an indication in order to get it approved. Now, unfortunately, Siendo had started under the previous guard of leadership. And it was my assumption that the new leadership would have been able to get a sober look at what the trial could do for the company and Selenexor. And what I didn't really anticipate was that what they more likely did was just look at the notes that the previous leadership had taken on potential meetings with the FDA, which may or may not have been accurate. And they just repeated those lines to investors, setting them up for failure because the data from this study had no chance of getting an SNDA approval. So I thought that was a small possibility because you still would have expected that the previous leadership would have set up the trial for success from a regulatory standpoint. So it's a total disappointment that the previous leadership, the previous team just wasn't capable of doing this, which is very frustrating. But I think that given that this is one of the bigger trials that the previous guard of management had their footprint on, the new leadership is really gonna be set up for success with future trials in that they're going to do their due diligence in order to craft the trials that set them up for success. Now, this data does support approval after a new trial is done, but it's just not enough for us today to get excited about it in this indication. So it's extremely disappointing, but not much we can do now. So the company is going to present the Siendo results, a larger data set at the Society for Gynecologic Oncology of 2022, and this is gonna take place March 18th to 21, but it sets us back so much because we were expecting revenue from this endometrial cancer indication to come in something like 2023. And it looks like we're gonna to have to wait maybe three years before we get any of that revenue since the top line data for this new trial won't be out until 2024, plus the regulatory filing, which might take another year before we see approval. So. That's the endo. It is a huge setback for the company, but there are some good things to look forward to. And I list those here. We're gonna look for continued Selenexor adoption. I still think that the new management team that has come in is absolutely set up for success for Selenexor adoption in the indications that it's approved for already. We're gonna to start to see more regulatory approvals as well as increasing sales within the USA as well as ex-USA. And the company's done a great job of partnering with other companies that are experienced in their respective markets to help with additional sales and bring that cash flow position up. 
I do think that there's going to be more clinical trial readouts that are positive for the company, but the real problem now is that there's a huge gap between today and when those readouts are going to come out, which is going to be in like 2023. So I think that there's going to be a real headwind on the stock price because of this, and we're likely going to continue to see a wavering of the stock unless we can get real adoption of Selenexor, which I do think might overcome some of that headwind. So what I'm thinking of doing is adding to the stock probably in late 2022 and hope that we start to see some positive clinical trial readouts along with more of that Selenexor sales adoption. So that's my plan. And I just want to say, you know, a lot of people were calling me out for selling some of my position at $14 a share. And, you know, in this biotech environment, it makes sense to take profits. So I would caution people about holding too long, which has been a problem for me in the past. But that's Carrier Farm. Very disappointing. But, you know, this is, uh, this is where we are. So before we get to our main story, I want to thank our sponsors, which is Info Pathways. Many biotech startups don't think that they have the time or money to protect their data. Without a dedicated IT team, data management is everyone's problem. Scientists find themselves redoing work and carrying out tasks outside of their expertise. Management finds themselves struggling to find funding and meet regulatory requirements. Don't let your company set itself up for failure. InfoPathways provides data management, cybersecurity, and technology compliance services for life science firms of any size. InfoPathways specializes in clean rooms, vivariums, GMP, or GLP compliant facilities, as well as BSL 1 through 4. No environment or regulation is too complex for InfoPathways. For more information, go to InfoPathways.com or call 410-751-9929 to learn more. And it's definitely something that is outside my expertise. I want to get to the science. So if you're a biotech startup, think about using InfoPathways for all of your IT needs. Go to InfoPathways.com or call 410-751-9929. And I want to thank them so much for being a sponsor for the show. All right, to get back into it, I want to talk about our feature story today, which is a company called Kodiak Sciences. And they have a product called KSI301 which is in the clinic for a bunch of different retinal diseases related to overproliferation of endothelial cells. Now, they recently announced their top-line data results from its initial phase 2B3 study of KSI-301 in patients with neovascular or wet age-related macular degeneration. Now, the company was trading at $55 a share of like a market cap around $5 billion, and it is now trading at $7.70 per share, giving them a market cap of around $400 million. Their Q4 net loss, which we just saw, is $93 million, so quite a significant burn rate as it is. Their current assets, though, sit at $735 million, with current liabilities at $54 million. And this is interesting to me because it gives their enterprise value of negative $271 million. So the stock price is trading significantly lower than their cash position right now. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. The first one on its face is that some institutions may be selling a lot of their stock position, which is depressing the stock price a lot more than you would expect if it was just traded from a retail basis. The other thing is I think that there's a real concern about this cash burn rate that will quickly eat up the cash position that they have. Now, I think that's going to start to decline as we start to get these readouts going. 
the company isn't going to be spending any more money on this Dazzle trial. So seemingly, we're going to get a reduction in the potential burn rate of the company. So I think that's a bit of a wavering problem. But we're still seeing this enterprise value at negative $281 million. And I'm thinking that it's a real opportunity here. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. So the company is an ophthalmology company. They're looking to commercialize KSI 301, which is a long-acting anti-VEGF therapy. And I'll touch on that more in the next slide. But the company's moved quite far, and they're at a stage now where they're about to read out a number of different indications in the ophthalmology sector. So the readout that we just saw was their Dazzle readout, which is in wet AMD, where they were giving KSI 301 at a dose frequency of something like Q12W, so once every three months or longer, in order to improve BCDA. Now the company is another trial where they're giving KSI 301 on a monthly basis, and this is called Daylight. This is in wet AMD, and we're expecting results from that in Q3 of 2021. And all of these trials that I'm talking about are phase three. So they're pretty far along as being a company that's really the next one to get some sort of approval in this indication where it's gonna compete with big market players like ILEA or Lucentis. So the company's looking at other retinal diseases that could benefit from a long-acting anti-VEGF therapy. Retinal vein occlusion is one indication, and this is the one that I'm most interested in. It's called the Beacon Study, and the data is going to be coming in Q3 of this year. They're also looking at diabetic macular edema, as well as diabetic retinopathy. So to touch on the differences of what KSI 301 can do compared to the existing technology, I just took this from Wikipedia. A flibercept, which is ILEA, the main player in the space, is a recombinant fusion protein consisting of vascular endothelial growth factor binding portion from the extracellular domains of VEGF receptors 1 and 2, and that's fused with the FC portion of the human IgG1 immunoglobulin. So they inject this intravitreously in the eye of patients that have wet AMD, and this acts as like a sink for VEGF that's overexpressed for one reason or another in the eye, which leads to the problems associated with wet AMD. Now the issue with the Flibercept is that it needs to be dosed on a frequency of once per month or once every other month in order to get improvements in outcomes of patients that have this disease. Ranibizumab or Lucentis is another type of treatment for this disease, but it's a monoclonal antibody that's raised against VEGF-A. So it works similarly to ILEA, but because it's an antibody itself that doesn't necessarily contain the extracellular domains of human VEGF receptor 1 or 2, it does work a little bit differently, but the outcome does end up being the same where these antibodies inhibit VEGF-A's action to bind to the endogenous VEGF receptor and cause that angiogenesis. So it does work quite well. And it compares quite favorably to Bevacizumab or Avastin, which is a drug that was commercialized for uh, cancer therapy, but it's been used off-label in wet AMD. In terms of market share, I think that Avastin has like half of it because it's so cheap. It's like $50 a dose compared to Lucentis or Ilea, which cost around $2,000 per dose. And so I think Lucentis only has something like 15 or 20% of the market, whereas Ilea has the rest. And so don't quote me on that. I think there's some data out there that I've seen to support that, but that's where the market is right now. 
Um, there's some other players that have been approved recently, but I think their adoption has been relatively slow. Beoview is one that comes to mind. But where KSI 301's excitement was is that it could be dosed maybe twice per year and it could have the same type of efficacy as something like a Flibercept or Ranibizumab. And it could do this because it was a antibody against VEGF, but it was linked to a biopolymer that would make it difficult for the body to uh, degrade it and then excrete it. So it would stick around in the eye long enough to exert more effects than something like an aflibercept or ranibizumab. That's what it was pitched as to us. And there was some interim data that really supported this, and I'll show this in just a second. But what we saw in this big top-line result readout was that the study of KSI 301 in neovascular or wet age-related macular degeneration is that the study did not meet the primary endpoint of showing non-inferiority visual acuity gains compared to a flibercept given every eight weeks. Nearly 60% of KSI 301 patients achieved every five-month dosing at year one with visual acuity gains and anatomic improvements comparable to the overall aflibercept group. Now, one quote I want to mention here is that they say that one significant factor that likely contributed to this phase 2b3 study missing its primary endpoint under treatment of a minority of patients is addressed in Beacon, proactively dosing every eight weeks, and Gleam Glimmer, tighter dynamic retreatment criteria, and dosing as frequently as every eight weeks, and is not present in daylight in which all patients are proactively treated on an every four-week regimen. So... From the outset, we were told before that it was around 60% of KSI 301 patients that would achieve once every six month dosing. And what they're saying here is that it's in fact once every five month dosing that they were able to see comparable visual acuity gains. So from its outset, you know, there's a real problem or real disconnect between this trial and the previous trial that we saw, the phase 1b data. So let's see what this looks like. So what we're looking at is the top line results that we see. And we see that KSI 301 given at five milligrams gets an average mean BCDA change from baseline at 52 weeks of around one. And the aflibercept group on the other hand gets a BCDA change from baseline at 52 weeks of around seven. So huge success for aflibercept, huge disappointment for KSI 301. We also see a big improvement of aflibercept compared to KSI 301 in the adjusted mean CST change. So even anatomically, we're seeing that KSI 301 is not able to get to the level of aflibercept in reducing CST. So overall, it's a big failure. But let's look at this when it's broken down in terms of which patients needed certain dosing adjustments. And so when we break it down here, it really looks like there's a portion of patients that are not able to get that Q20 or Q24 week dosing regimen and still get improvements in BCDA. So what we see is that 10% of patients need Q16 weekly dosing regimen, and then they're still able to get pretty good improvements in BCDA. But the patients on Q12W dosing, 30% of them, even on Q12 dosing, still get a pretty big failure when it comes to improvements in BCBA. 
Now the problem with this study is that the protocol did not support dosing more frequently than Q12W, which is once every three months, I believe. So the investigators could not dose more frequently in order to get these patients up to the level of where they would need to be in order to bring the average amount up and see non-inferiority to a set. So if you imagine that within this 30% of patients, a portion of them actually do respond to Q12W dosing, but another portion, probably a significant amount, don't. And they needed something like Q8 or Q4 weekly dosing. But we're not able to see that because the protocol limited it so much. Now, if we compare this data to what we saw in the phase 1b data set, we got an improvement of plus 5.7 on BCDA, and this compares to one on the phase three trial that we're looking at right now. So just a huge disappointment in terms of the level of efficacy that we see from phase 1b to phase 2b3. And the same is true for CST. They got negative 105 on the earlier trial, and then now they're seeing only 91.5. So very interesting here, and the mean number of injections is five in year one. Okay, so I already mentioned the issue here, which is that physicians could not dose more frequently than Q12W, and this is what really brought the average BCDA down substantially. And so I'm showing here the comparison of what it looked like in the previous trial, the phase 1b, compared to the current trial now. And I already mentioned that there's a discrepancy in what the results they got in the phase 1b versus what they saw in the phase 2b3. Now to talk about safety briefly, this is another sticking point, which is that KSI 301 had a number of safety signals that did not come up in the aflibercep group at all, which is very interesting. The aflibercep group had zero safety signals, whereas in their FDA filing documents in the label, the studies show that intraocular inflammation rates with aflibercep happen at a rate of around 1 to 4.5%. So this data here that they're presenting is that aflibercep did a lot better than what was expected, whereas KSI 301 did what was in line with what was expected. I think that these safety signals are still pretty manageable and that it looks a lot worse because the aflibercep group did so good. So I think this is okay, despite the fact that it looks kind of bad on its face. These numbers here are pretty good. And if you look at these compared to some of the gene therapy products that are in the clinic right now, this looks a lot better than them. So I still think this would support approval technically if the efficacy was there, which it was not. So what I wanna talk about is sort of the upcoming trials that are happening and talk about my thesis on why I think it makes sense to take a position and is something that I've done, not trading advice, but it is something that I'm doing and I wanna explain why, totally for entertainment purposes. So the net assets that Kodiak has now are 681 million, giving them that enterprise value of negative 281. But the company has a number of phase three readouts that are upcoming pretty soon and they're gonna be pretty big movers for the stock. So I already mentioned some of the details of these, but what is important to note and what the company noted previously is that the upcoming readouts are going to allow the investigators to dose more frequently than Q12W, which was a limitation in this wet AMD study. 
Now, I don't think they're going to need to dose that often in a number of these studies, but because the investigator has the option, it'll give those patients an opportunity to see BCVA improvements, which is in line with what they showed us in their phase 1B trial data. Now, they were restricted from doing that in this current wet AMD trial, but they're not going to be that hindered in the upcoming readouts. And so we're going to focus on the renal vein occlusion study because this is the one that's coming up so soon. So to start off here, I want to share the phase 1B data in RBO. And what they shared here was something similar to the wet AMD data at one year, which is that 66% of the patients were on a six month or longer treatment free interval at one year. Very similar to wet AMD, right? So, you know, we could expect, and I think investors are pricing in that it's actually going to be a majority of patients that are on five months or longer, which I think is okay. It's still a lot better than the standard of care today. And if the safety is in line with what we saw with the phase three and wet AMD, I think it'll still be okay. If we see that a flibercept actually comes in with what we would expect between one and 4% of intraocular inflammation, like we would expect them to do given the label. So I wanna show here a comparison between the view one and view two study, which is a look of ILEA given at different dosing intervals in central retinal vein occlusion. Compare that to the phase 1B data from Kodiak that was looking at branch and central vein occlusion patients. So there's a bit of a distinction here is that KSI 301 is taking both branch and central vein patients, whereas the view one and view study was just central vein patients. But I think we can ignore that and you know take it on its face that it will be a bit of a wash in the data. So what I wanna show here is that in the label for ILEA, we see that ILEA given Q8W, or once every two months or eight weeks, they get a BCVA improvement of around nine, nine to 11, we'll say. If we compare that to what Kodiak saw, they got a plus 22 improvement in these patients and a decrease in CST of 357. So these patients seem to be responding significantly more than those that were treated with ILEA, as well as patients that were treated with KSI 301 that have wet AMD. If we compare the improvement here in retinal vein occlusion patients to those with wet AMD, which I'm just gonna go back, we see here that the wet AMD improvement from KSI 301 is only six in the interim data that we saw in phase 1B. So for some reason, and I'm not expert enough in this area to know why, we're seeing that KSI 301 has a major improvement in RVO patients compared to wet AMD patients. So I think that's notable on its face, that we could expect a better efficacy outcome here compared to wet AMD if all else is equal. The other thing is, going back to what I said before, is that the doctors are going to be able to dose up to Q8W. So even if patients fall off this once every five month dosing regimen, the average BCVA will be set to be non-inferior to ILEA because the doctor will have that much flexibility. Now where the concern comes in is that if the average number of doses that are given approaches something like once every eight weeks or Q8W, you know, the real value proposition of KSI 301 is going to go down because Patients may as well take ILEA since there's so much of a history with ILEA. QAW 
rather than this new treatment because there's no real benefit on the dosing schedule. But what I think is gonna happen is that the average dosing schedule will still support something like once every five months, but some patients, a minority of them, will not respond that well, and they'll need something like Q8W. But I think for approval reasons, it will be okay. And yeah, and I'm excited about this readout because I really think that it will come out in a way that supports KSI 301 for approval, and we should see a pretty big increase in the stock from this readout. So to reiterate here, I'm not gonna go through this again, but the management is also signaling that this is probably the reason why it missed its primary endpoint and that the studies that are upcoming are likely going to overcome this. So I wanted to quickly go over the market potential for RVO. And I found one paper, there's a bunch that are out there that did some kind of analysis on how common renal vein occlusion is. And in this paper, it said 0.77% of the population or 2.5 million patients in the USA. If we estimate that the cost of KSI 301 is $2,000 per treatment, they might price it a little bit higher if they can get the dosing regimen approval of something like once every five months. But if we say it's three times per year, it's around $6,000 per patient, total addressable market of around $15 billion. There's no way that Kodiak could ever approach this total addressable market, but if we do some kind of clever discounting, I could see that the stock trades at around $1 billion if they see pretty good data in this upcoming readout. But I think the other thing is that if they see a positive readout in RVO, I think it's going to flip the switch where people are going to expect positive readouts in their diabetic macular edema trial and potentially the diabetic retinopathy trial. And I think that there's gonna be a renewed bullishness of the stock that could send it closer towards 1.5 billion if they see positive data here. So. That's what I'm thinking, and I've started to scale in a position in Kodiak, and since I'm down already around 15% on my position, I think I'm going to add to it as we get closer to this phase three readout in RBO. And that's my thesis on Kodiak, so please let me know what you think. I think it's a compelling story, and uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. You know, a number of institutions got hammered on this stock since they were holding and buying up until this readout. And uh, it's unfortunate, you know, I don't, I don't like to dance in anybody's graves here because it really takes out a ton of capital in the sector when this stuff happens. So I think we should really hope for everyone's success when it comes to these readouts. In terms of what I'm looking forward to, I've mentioned this a number of times, Replimune has an event coming up this month that I'm going to be probably taking another position in before it comes up. PDSB has some more stuff coming. And then BioXL has that PDUFA on April 5th. To do a quick portfolio overview. In terms of green positions, there's not really much to talk about. The XBI saw new lows this week, which is very unfortunate. Um, I have here that my KOD position, I bought 100 shares at $9.13. It's now trading at 7.70, so I'm down 15%. Madrigal has seen a ton of bullishness, but in the last few days it went down. I'm flat on that. And I'm thinking that, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm thinking of taking some money off the table given that it is around 11% of my portfolio. I would have liked to have taken some money off when it was closer to $100 per share. So I'm still gonna hold on because I do think that the upcoming Nash readout is gonna be exciting and we might see a big run up in the stock. So for that reason, I'm comfortable holding, but 
given the environment that we're in with biotech, I might take some off the table. Otherwise, some companies that I'm going to look to add, Replimune is one. Clearside, I'm tempted to, but I think I'm going to wait longer because, you know, there's not a lot of updates that are coming and we still need to see some more adoption with their approved product. But we did see a big move up in Regenix Bio on their Q4 earnings readout, so I got to go over that still and see what's going on. In terms of where I'm at, negative 17%, which puts me in line with the Qs, although it's because the Qs are down so much, which is why that's a, a bad thing. But I'm doing better than the IBB, the XBI, as well as ArcG. ArcG is down 30% year to date. So brutal. And a big reason for that is this new patent news that we saw about CRISPR. I think the UC Berkeley patents were invalidated, so all the companies that have technology licensed from that might not be able to enforce their rights. So the Broad patents are the ones that are leading right now, but you know with appeals coming up, it's very tough to navigate. So I need to do a little bit more digging here to see whether or not there's an effect on Caribou. I know the stock declined on that news, but I need to see more whether or not it really is relevant um, because that is a company that I'm looking to take a position in this year. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. So I want to thank everybody for your attention. Please let me know what you think in the comments about my thesis on KOD or KPTI. And yeah, with that, we're going to wrap it up. But I do appreciate everybody and your attention. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time.